much, Vivian and Finn and Sam and the musicians. Uh, good to see you all here. Very warm welcome to King's Church again. We're going to be spending our time in John chapter 1. So if you have a, a Bible, do turn back to that. I've just got one page of my notes that I need to put back in there. In this series we're doing at the moment, which is called Come and See, we're walking through one of the official biographies of Jesus. There are four of them. And this one was written by John. And several times in this book, somebody says, come and see. And it actually happens twice in our passage today. And the first person to say it is Jesus himself. If you look down at verse 39, uh, they ask Jesus, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. And then a little bit later on in the passage, verse 46, uh, Nathaniel is saying, well, he's from Nazareth? I don't know about that. Anything good ever come from there? And Philip replies, Come and see. And then in a couple more chapters, we'll find out soon, a woman in chapter 4 who has had a life-changing, absolutely life-changing conversation with Jesus. She puts it more dramatic, even more dramatically. She goes to her friends and she says, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And hearing these words every time, people change direction. Come and see. They, they divert their steps to meet Jesus. And time and again, the encounters with Jesus are transformative. They are always surprising. We're going to see this. Jesus is unpredictable. You don't know what he's going to do or say. He's not tame. He's not domesticated. He's not always polite. He's not really into small talk. See, when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, he turns the entire house upside down. And he moves all the furniture in your life around. Are you ready to meet him? Our hope and prayer for this series is that we will all, every one of us, come and see Jesus Christ. Now listen, this series is actually a really sweet opportunity to invite a friend to come and see. Every Sunday, God willing, until the end of May, we will be looking in John's Gospel at another person who met Jesus, another encounter. So we've got until the end of May, and it is the perfect time to bring someone to church. I'm going to do my best to speak uh, to those who are looking into the Christian faith, not just to the choir. And we hope that our meetings will bring the joy and gladness that comes with knowing him. We've had feedback from people recently that that is the case, so we're encouraged. Now, we're still in the first chapter. Sam's already mentioned this. And already our minds have been blown several times. The book starts by saying that Jesus is the word of God. He's the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God at the very beginning. And he was God. So immediately we're faced with this mind-blowing concept of somebody who is God and yet is distinct from God. He's the word of God. He's the one who created all things. And this God is put in terms of, of being a son. Not a son as we normally think of a father and son in terms of you know, the son was born to the father. No, this is a relationship that can be characterized as father and son. He's God the son, but he's also God the man. This is God who became flesh, came down to be one of us, fully embraced humanity, and lived among us. He's full of grace. That's God's kindness and mercy. He's full of truth. He explains the world to us, explains ourselves to us. He casts light 
on our paths. He's all of these things. And then last week we thought about how he's the Lamb of God. Another image. The Word became the Lamb of God. And the Lamb takes away all the sin of the world. Blimey! You could not get a more dramatic introduction, could you, to a book. You couldn't have got a more dramatic introduction to the most spectacular Hollywood blockbuster. Now, after all of that build-up, we finally meet Jesus. And in John 1, verse 36, he steps onto the pages of history. And this is what it says. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And what we're going to learn today is this. Get ready for it. What we're going to learn today is Jesus doesn't want people to become Christians. Jesus doesn't want people to become Christians. He wants them to become disciples. He wants them to become disciples. Now, it might sound a little bit controversial, but let me point out, Jesus never told anyone to be a Christian or to become a Christian. He, but he constantly called people to be his disciples. The whole New Testament backs up this emphasis. The word which we translate Christian, which is Christianos, is only found three times in the Bible, and it was actually an insult at the start. Three times. But the word disciple, more than 260 times. That's where the emphasis lies. And this emphasis on being a disciple is not just about word count. It's also a matter of emphasis. In one of his most important statements, Jesus made the idea of making disciples the absolute centerpiece. His last words in Matthew's gospel, he's about to ascend to heaven to the place of uh, divine rule. And his, his, his last words, very important, his, his marching orders. He says, listen, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. All the authority you could imagine, the supreme authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The big point of the end of Matthew's gospel is this I've got all authority, so go and make disciples. You see how important it is? He's not interested in asking people to become a Christian. It's about a disciple. What this means then, the word of God, God himself, the light of the world, the incarnate son who came all the way down from heaven to earth and became one of us. The one who gives you and me the right to become children of God that nobody else could. The one who gives us grace and mercy upon grace and mercy. The lamb of God who takes away all of your sins. What does he want for us? What does this one want from you and me? It is, what is his priority for our lives? It's this, that we become disciples. We're not, just, we're not interested in calling people to change their religious allegiance so they tick Christian on the census form. We're, we're, our job as a church and every believer's job is to call people to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we do need to find out what a disciple is, don't we? We need to be clear. What is a disciple? So if we were to turn to the dictionary, the word we find has two meanings. 
this word. Firstly, it's someone who's committed to learning from somebody else, a lifelong learner. A disciple is a bit like a pupil or an apprentice. Secondly, it can mean a person who is a follower of a teacher or a leader or a thinker. So you could talk about, for example, Karl Marx's disciples carried on his ideas after his death. So there's those two meanings of learning and following. But you know, we do need more than a dictionary definition, don't we? We need to know what it looks like. What does being a disciple actually look like? Boots on the ground. And in our text today, we have this picture painted of the very first disciples of Jesus. And we are introduced to four people, and we learn four things about what it means to be a disciple. It's quite simple, actually, but it really goes to the heart of it. Disciples walk, talk, serve, and worship. They walk, talk, serve, and worship. There's four things that disciples do. Firstly, they walk. Look uh, back at verses 36 to 39. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, look at these two guys. They've been followers of John the Baptist. And it just makes you wonder, are these two guys particularly flaky? I mean, as soon as they see Jesus, they just jump ship and start following him. See you, John. (laughs) Later. (laughs) Now, it's not the case that they were flaky because we learned last week that John the Baptist's whole life was devoted to preparing the way for Jesus. So these two are doing 100% the right thing. And notice Jesus' response to them. The first thing he says to them is, what you would say if two men started following you. What do you want? (laughs) Well, it's natural, isn't it? But you know, there's a much deeper level at work in that question. What do you want? I think we all have to ask this question. Friends, what do you want in life? Really, we have to figure out where we're heading. And being a disciple means you've found that answer in Jesus Christ, following him. What do you want? I want Jesus. That's how radical it is. Now, these two men are a little bit taken aback. So they say, Rabbi, where uh, where are you staying? In other words, they want to come and spend some serious time with Jesus. And he replies, come and see. And they did. And they stayed. They become part of the group for the next three years. So the first thing we learn about being a disciple is that disciples walk with Jesus. In the Hebrew culture and in the Bible, walking is is a a metaphor for living. It's for your whole life because it's your walk. It's everything you do day by day, bit by bit. Walking with Jesus is not just a passing acquaintance. It's not like joining a club or a society. It's much bigger than that. It means a complete commitment to following Jesus Christ day by day in your whole life. They follow him. They go with him. They transfer their loyalty to him. They give things up for him. They sit at his feet. They absorb his teaching. They follow him around and study him. 
They learn from him, and as a result, they copy him. They imitate Jesus, and then they become like him. What's that song we just sang? I want to be like Jesus. That's exactly it. He's picked the right songs. And you do know, don't you, that whatever you spend most time with will shape you. It will influence you and shape your character for good or ill. The music that you listen to most of the time and the words that that music says are shaping you. Think about that. The media sources that you spend most time with reading and absorbing and looking at their imagery, they shape, they're shaping you. The friends or the people that you hang out with, the people that you listen to, they're shaping you all the time. I'll give you a silly example. When I was 18 years old, I uh, went to work for a civil service department in Hinchley Wood. I used to cycle there down past the Ace of Spades. And I started work for a charming man who was a very uh, warm character. He was mildly eccentric. And he had a quirky mannerism. It was quirky. I won't tell you what it was. But guess what happened to me? 18-year-old. A few, within a few weeks, I was, I, had, I was doing the quirky mannerism as well. And my family got a lot of fun out of that. I didn't want to. It just happened without even trying. You pick things up. Imitation. It's unconscious. At heart, we're all ducklings. You know ducklings that kind of get born and then they imprint on them, start following around. I think if a duckling sees you, you've got a friend for life. Now look at what can happen. In verses 40 to 41, we meet this guy, Simon Peter, just an ordinary tradesman, okay? Fisherman. Years later, he became a disciple. Years later, a few years later, two of these men were dragged before the highest court of the capital city. They'd been caught preaching about Jesus with great power and winning huge crowds. The most important leaders in their community put them in jail, the next day, they were hauled out to face a hostile council of all the most important, powerful men in town. And they're these just two uneducated trades guys. And one of the disciples answered the questions of the committee with great authority. And listen to what it says next. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see it? They'd been with Jesus. That means a lot more than that they met Jesus on the bus. It means they were associated with him. Their lives were intermingled with him. They walked with him day by day for three years, lived with him. Their lives were changed forever by that association. And that's what disciples do. They walk with Jesus. So if you're looking into the Christian faith, so glad you're here, the first thing I want to tell you is that we're not talking about just adopting a sort of new ideology. We're talking about a whole life transformation and where all of you goes in and everything changes. I just want to be honest with you that that's what we're talking about. Now, how can we walk with Jesus? Obviously, we can't walk with him like they did in his physical presence. We walk with Jesus by listening to him speak in his word. 
The Bible is the very word of Jesus. And when we study it and learn it and read it, we actually hear his voice. We also talk to Jesus. We do that by praying throughout the day, being conscious of him and bringing our lives and our thoughts and our worries and our hopes and his kingdom, bringing it all before him, talking to him. And we also do it by folding our lives into his body. And his body is the local church. So by enfolding your life in the life of the local church, you are walking with Jesus. Those are very simple things. None of this is rocket science. We, we hear from him in the Bible, we talk to him in prayer, and we fold our life into the, his community, his body. That's how we walk with Jesus. So if you're uh, already a disciple here today, may I ask you very politely if walking with Jesus is still a priority as it was when you first followed him? Is it still a priority? If it is, then you should be really encouraged. Whatever else is going on with your life, the, ba- the main thing is still the main thing. But it, some of us perhaps might have to say, well, I think he might be being crowded out. I'm so busy. I got the burden of all these responsibilities. Maybe following Jesus has gone on the back burner a bit. This is the day to change. When you have a moment of downtime, what media source do you turn to? Is it ever the Bible? Or is it always Netflix, Disney Plus, and TikTok? Compared to the other voices in your life, how much airtime does Jesus Christ get? When was the last time you sat down, switched off the phone, closed down the music, closed out the other voices, and listened to his word? Disciples walk with Jesus. Secondly, disciples talk. They talk about Jesus. It's a really striking thing in this passage. Nearly everyone who comes to Jesus does so because somebody else told them about him. It's really interesting. John the Baptist tells the first two guys, and they go and follow Jesus. And one of them is called Andrew. And Andrew then tells his brother, Simon. And in verse 41, he says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we found the Messiah. That is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. See how he's already passing on what he's discovered, including his enthusiasm? Now, we don't know how Philip got introduced, but notice that Philip immediately talks as well. And in verse 45, Philip finds Nathaniel, another friend, and he tells him, we found the one Moses wrote about. Note here the little detail. Philip now is already copying Jesus because he says, come and see Come and see in verse 46, just like Jesus had done. You see, disciples talk. They talk. They found someone wonderful. They found someone who's changed their life. At last they found someone with all the answers that their heart needed. Someone who understands you. Someone who knows you and loves you. So naturally, the disciple wants to talk about Jesus and introduce other people to him. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh no, he's going to start banging on about evangelism. Some of you are thinking, okay, here we go. Fasten your seatbelt. Because let's be honest, most people don't like evangelism, do they? Most Christians don't even like it. Most Christians are not really dying to talk about Jesus. 
Some of us would rather go to the dentist and have root canal surgery than try and talk about Jesus. Just take it out. Why is that? Because it is often so awkward in this culture. It's so awkward to talk about Jesus. And if there's one thing that most British people hate, it is feeling awkward. We just don't want to go to Awkwardville. We went there once. We're not going back. Now, friends, many of our church, your heritage is from other parts of the world. And if your heritage is from the global south, from Africa, perhaps, or if your heritage is from parts of Asia, you may well be wonderfully free of this affliction. Uh, we had many friends, my pre pre former church in Manchester, many, many friends from the global south or the east, and they had no problem at all talking about faith, the Bible, Jesus, God. They were stunned at how difficult Brits found it. I mean, seriously stunned. And they wondered what was wrong with us. And the answer is a lot. <laughs> so if you're from the global south, by the way, if you have a Muslim friend, or Muslim connection, and you don't tell them that you, about your faith, Muslims generally assume that's because you're ashamed of it. We had to learn this in, in our, where we lived in Manchester. On the next street, we had Muslims. And with them, the first thing they wanted to talk about was religion. And then in our street, we had Guardian-reading liberals. And the last thing they ever wanted to talk about was religion. Two different worlds, two streets. So we know what the kind of environment we're living in. Would you... Uh, people here from the global south or the global east, would you pray for us, Brits, and help, give us some help? So let's be real. We don't, most, many of us aren't excited about talking about Jesus. And there's something else as well, this, this, that the New Testament talks about a gift of evangelism, a gift of evangelism. Some Christians are just specially gifted by God at sharing the faith. It just comes to them naturally, and they just saw, and they just seem to get away with it. They don't offend anyone, and it's lovely to watch. But I have learned this. That gift is distributed very sparsely. Natural evangelists are like hen's teeth. There's only a few of them in any church I've ever been to. But here's the thing, friends. No one is asking you or me to become an evangelist. We're just asked to be a disciple. And all the disciple has to do is walk across the room. You just have to walk across the room. There's an evangelist and a trainer whose name is Dave Bennett. It's not the Dave Bennett of our church, although maybe he's a relative. He submitted a 20,000-word dissertation for a degree in evangelism studies. And the, the research that he did took the form of a questionnaire. He interviewed nearly 400 people who had become Christians in adult life between 1995 and 2002. So nearly 400 people who become Christians in adult life. And he discovered some very interesting things. 92% of these people had a relationship with a Christian of some kind, a friend or a neighbor or colleague, before they became a Christian themselves. Most of them had at least one relationship with a Christian that was very significant in coming to faith. Relationship was key. Real relationship. But it wasn't just relationship because the Christians also did a few things. Here's some activities that Christians had done. Praying. 87% of the people said that before they became a Christian, they knew that someone was praying for them. 
wonder if you've ever said to a, a, a non-believing friend, I, I'm, gonna, I'm praying for you. You'd be surprised. Most people are absolutely delighted to hear that, even if they don't believe. I'm praying for you. And then there's inviting. Again, 87% had received some kind of invitation. One lady was invited to a carol service at a church for 15 years, every year, and she said no every year. For 15 years. And then the 16th year, she said yes, and she ended up becoming a Christian. People like to be invited to quality events. Community day, quiz night, hog roast, women's curry night. Don't say no for them. Just ask them. Lifestyle, the way that Christians lived, had an impact. Caring and getting alongside. The Christians cared for people's needs genuinely. And then there's explaining, and this is very interesting for us. More than three quarters said that the gospel being explained by an ordinary individual was very important. And more people said that an individual explaining it was important than a preacher explaining it. So in other words, for, for me, three quarters of the people, it's more important to have a, a friend or just an, a, a neighbor or somebody explain the, the Christian faith than a, a preacher doing it. See, you might think, oh, I have to get them to church because I'll get the expert to do it. No, actually, it's more powerful coming from you. Isn't that interesting? Maybe God wants you to be the first one. A church in central London called St. Helens Bishopsgate has devoted significant time to a resource called the Word One-to-One, which is just one person sharing John's gospel with another person, a friend. And they've seen many people come to faith through it. But that doesn't mean that the local churches are completely irrelevant because 90% said that church was involved. Going to a church service at some point was very significant. So let me just say, do you see a, a picture emerging here? Conversion is a gradual process, mostly. It normally includes a genuine relationship, prayer, a lifestyle that's different, caring for somebody, sharing with them, inviting them to something, connecting to a healthy church family. Disciples talk. That means you don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to have a big and bold personality. You don't have to have lots of answers. You don't have to be an expert. It's probably better if you're not because people get intimidated by experts. You just need to be a normal person who loves and follows Jesus, prays for your friend, loves them, and invite them to things from time to time. Now, can you do that? I think you can. And for me, that takes the pressure off. Disciples talk. Are you still talking about him? I don't mean awkwardly forcing conversations because if we are talking about real relationship. But do you ever get there? And if you don't, don't feel bad about it. Just start praying. Can you think of just one person who you can pray for and commit to praying for them and ask God to open that door of conversation at some point? Just start small. You will be astonished about what God can do through you. Disciples walk with Jesus. They talk. The next points are a bit quicker, by the way. They also serve. They serve. Look at this uh, encounter with Simon. Verse 41 and 42, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ, 
And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Hello, I don't think I've met you before. My name's Mike. What's your name? Jim. Jim. You will no longer be called Jim. You will be called Jeff. (laughs) See you later. Jim, son of Bob Shoot. You will be called Jeff, which translated is Jeff. Imagine that. You just met, by the way, I do know him. You just met someone and immediately you renamed them. Normally you only rename people when you, you got to know them a bit, you know. Usually to indicate some kind of intimacy. It always makes me laugh. People that we've known forever at this church, who when they meet someone else and they get married, the one they're marrying changes their name. We've known this guy as Gaza forever, and all of a sudden he's now called Gareth. Oh, Gareth. Yet this is what Jesus does to Simon. Very quickly changes his name. Okay, Simon, you'll be called, you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, what is this? Cephas sounds a bit like Kepha. In Greek, uh, it, the language is Petros. In both languages, it means a stone or rock. You will be called rock. Rocky. Now, why did Jesus pick this particular nickname? Was it because Peter looked like Dwayne Johnson? The rock. No. Peter was a fairly normal looking guy, as far as I can tell. In fact, there wasn't much about Peter in the early days that you would have wanted to call him the rock. He was a disciple guilty of the most epic fails. He tried to walk on water like Jesus. He thought it's Hawaii 5.0. He gets overwhelmed with terror by the waves and he starts to sink. He gets it spectacularly right in Mark's gospel. Jesus, you are the Messiah. Soon after, he completely blows it by rebuking Jesus, revealing that he hasn't actually understood the mission at all. Don't. In his weakest moment, he denied Jesus vehemently in front of several witnesses and said, I never knew him. I swear to you, I never knew him. And then the cock crowed and Jesus looked across the courtyard and he made eye contact. Oh! You see, Peter wasn't really a rock at all. Who... Why give him the name? The answer is that the emphasis is not really on Peter, but on Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes people what he calls them to be, not what he finds inside them. Peter wasn't a rock when Jesus met him. He was with Jesus for three years and he became the rock. So disciples, they don't just walk and talk, they serve Jesus and he changes them and that was the one thing about Peter he was ready to serve Jesus even though he was very flawed he was ready to serve and Jesus stuck with him in spite of all his messes he used him and he changed him the least the very least the least important of the disciples is great in Jesus kingdom because Jesus Christ makes them great he's the one that is going to use you he's the one that's going to change you if you submit to his lead and let him take charge of your life But you do need to be ready to serve and then see where he takes you. Follow him wherever he leads. William Carey was an absolute nobody. He lived in the second half of the 18th century. He was not even really a qualified shoemaker. He was a cobbler. He was kind of a traveling guy, very poor, mending shoes. 
And he was a guy who wasn't really especially talented in, in many ways, uh, but he loved languages and learning languages and learning about the world. And he said that his one real gift in life was the ability to plod. He was a plodder. He said, I can plod. An ordinary man, and he actually changed the world because he caught a great vision of Jesus and he wanted to serve him. He made a map made out of little pieces of leather that were scraps from the shoemaking. And on this map, he, he drew this map of the world and he put on all the information of everything he could find out about all the nations of the world, who lived there, what language they spoke, how many there were and how, what percentage were, were believers in Jesus. And he got a real burden that Christianity had ended up basically in, in Europe and in North America. And the world was lost. So he said, send me. And he shared this vision with 14 guys. All of them were very unimportant. They were all crammed into a back room in an East Midlands house. The room that they were in was 12 foot by 10. 14 guys sitting there. And they passed around a snuff tin and they raised a, a, a fund to, to, to reach the world of 13 pounds, two shillings. That was it. And Carey went on a six-month sea voyage to India. And this, these were his credentials when he got there. Education, minimal. Degrees, none. Savings, depleted. Political influence, nil. References, a band of country preachers half a world away. What were his resources? A weapon, love. A desire to bring the light of God into the darkness. A strategy to proclaim by life, lip, and letters the unsearchable riches of Christ. An ordinary person who had a desire to serve and ended up changing the world. Disciples serve. So let me ask, who are you primarily serving in your life at this moment? Is it Jesus? Or is something else crowding him out? Who's setting the agenda for your heart, your diary? Who do you follow? Disciples walk, talk, serve, and finally, they worship. They worship. Let's look finally at this interaction with Nathaniel. Nathaniel starts out very skeptical. He's a, somewhat of a student, and he's very skeptical about what he hears about Jesus. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel, and he said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. Now when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now here this skeptic who thinks that nothing good can come from up north where Nazareth is, is converted and won over because of what Jesus says to him about himself. And here's the tantalizing thing. We don't know what was going on under the fig tree. We don't know what Jesus knew about that, but it was clearly divinely revealed to Jesus as supernatural insight. And it was so uh, mind-blowing and, and rocking for Nathaniel that it led to this incredible declaration. Teacher, you are the son of God, the king. But then there's even more because Jesus carried on. In verse 50, he says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. 
you will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a quote from the Old Testament from one of the early uh, leaders of God's people from Jacob. You might have heard of Jacob's ladder. Jacob was on the run from his brother. He'd he'd wronged his brother. His brother was out to get vengeance. Jacob was, was in a real bad place and he was out on the run in the wilderness and he lay down with just a rock for his pillow. And at that night, he saw an incredible vision of a ladder, a stairway going to heaven and angels going up and down from the very presence of God. And in this vision, God spoke to him and reiterated his commitment to Jacob and his promises to him that he would be part of Abraham's legacy and that the world would be blessed through him in spite of his, his own mistakes and wrongdoing. So Jacob's ladder was this place where the presence of God himself was real to Jacob and God promised to be with him and bless him. What's the point of this vision? It's a glimpse into heaven itself. It's a glimpse into ultimate reality, the presence of God who made all things. But now a new Jacob is here. Jesus is the new Jacob, the new Israel, the son of man who is the better Jacob. He replaces Bethel, the place where the, that, that vision had been seen. He replaces the tabernacle, the, temp in the temple, uh, sorry, tent in the desert. He replaces the temple because he, there's no need for any physical worship site anymore. This room here is not a sanctuary. It's just a room because Jesus now is God's temple on earth. If you want to connect with God, come to Jesus. So disciples worship. They've seen him for who he is. They don't just know about Jesus. They haven't just got data and information. They worship him. It means they love him. Really love him. They adore him. They care about what he cares about. When his people suffer, they suffer. When somebody in the church family rejoices, they rejoice. Jesus is their number one. So what this all means is that being a disciple is not simply a matter of adopting a moral code, pattern of behavior, or, or some new beliefs. It's about becoming a worshiper of Jesus. Disciples walk, they talk, they serve, they worship. Are you getting the picture now what he's calling us to? Does Jesus Christ have your worship? C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do we need to rediscover what it means to be a disciple here? I think we do. Because every generation needs to learn anew what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we will need to learn it as well for ourselves. And we have different generations. We have four generations in this church. So the, the, See, I'm a generation that my watch could start talking to me and I don't even know what it was doing. I have to ask a teenager. 
You younger people, you're going to have to figure out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus for your time. It's very different from the baby boomers and the Gen X and millennials. For Gen Z and the following one, discipleship is going to be very different. You're going to have to figure it out. And we live now in a time of lots of information but very light commitment. We've got access to many more ideas and information. We can learn a lot about a lot of things, but real commitment is shrinking across the board. Commitment to volunteering for charities, commitment to being involved and committed to things. I mean, just to give you an example, political commitment. In the 1950s, the Labour Party had one million members. It now has 400,000. And the country's grown. But listen to what's happened to the Conservative Party. In the 50s, the Conservative Party had three million members. The Conservative Party has, now has 170,000. See, commitment is dropping all over the place. And <laughs> what have we learned about what Jesus wants? Walk, talk, serve and worship. Now, every question needs to answer, a, every sermon needs to answer a question, which is this. So what? <laughs> so what? Why should this matter? Why should being a disciple matter to you this week? Here's why I think. Because you don't want to waste your life. I don't think you want to waste your life. I guess that you want your life to matter, to count for something. I think you probably want your life to have a purpose, to be part of something great, for your life to, to count. Wouldn't you like to be part of something really big and really good? This is the way, by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christian friends, where can you grow as a disciple today in walking, talking, serving, worshipping? And non-believing friends who are with us, this is what Jesus wants. He's not asking you to become a Christian. He wants you to become a disciple. Have you heard his voice calling your life? Then what are you waiting for? Come and see. Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, I want to come before you now, just in a moment really of uh, pausing, cast our minds back to those first few who saw you there and what was it? They, they were drawn to you, they followed you, and many of them died for you, but they would count it worth it. It was worth everything to the surpassing wonder of knowing you. Give that same grace to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.